0: With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze,
2: relax
1: and think about
2: work.
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash/host. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast. So, Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people.
3: The producers of this podcast
4: recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal Elders
2: past, present and those emerging.
0: Thank you for joining us for part two of Brent Simpson's story. You already know there's so much more to Brent than the banditos motorcycle club and jail time. But we've held something back from you until now, and that is that Brent is also a podcaster. Yes, Brent has his own podcast called The Clink. And in the overcrowded true crime space, I think it really does have a very unique point of view because it's the only show I know of that's solely about redemption stories. Brent is a great interviewer, which I'm sure you'll find easy to believe, and he's had some famous guests on too, like Barry Hall and Gary Jubelin. We have a link in the show notes to help you find Brent's podcast, The Clink, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. But today we're streaming an episode for you right here, in which Brent tells the story of his childhood. It's a tough listen, but we know why it's important to hear stories like this, so please take the time to bear witness to Brent's story, and then go and subscribe to The Clink.
3: Welcome to The Clink Podcast. Um, You wouldn't have heard my voice before. My name is Jay. I actually work really closely with Brent, um, I'm the producer of this podcast, and um, I'm sitting here with him right now, and I've actually never seen him so uncomfortable.
4: Um, I think uncomfortable is an understatement, to be honest with you, mate. I uh, never really wanted to sit down... And, um, I mean, not that I haven't told my story before. There's been plenty of um, documentaries and media done about my my life um, and, and a story of redemption. But eh, when it's your own story, your own podcast, and everybody's asking for it, um, it has to be nothing but the best. So um, today's will be one that goes quite deep.
3: We've had a shitload of people ask for this story, and I know we've been talking about it for pretty much six or seven weeks about you wanting whether you wanted to do it or not and i think um the fact that you're doing it is um is admirable and i know there's going to be a lot of people that hear this and and thank you for for talking so um let's get into it hey
4: yeah it's been a um (laughs) quite an anxious day here we are. <laughs> Welcome to Mount Woodgee Studios. He live from Corrupted on the Gold Coast.
1: <laughs> I'm a... here about to share my story. For the record, I'm done trying to make y'all comfortable. For the record, you ain't trying to grow any stuff for you. Rap. For the record, lab on me going all the, way. all the way. For the record, ain't trying to link no time to waste. Stop for the record, <clears throat> for the record, <clears throat> for the, <clears throat> for the record. <clears throat> For the record, I'm done trying to make y'all comfortable
3: Let's start as a kid As a kid Tell me about the early days before you were 10
4: Yeah, so I uh, originally was born um, on the North Shore of Sydney In Manly District Hospital Um Middle class sort of parents, I guess, hard workers back then, what I can remember. Um, we moved out to the western suburbs of Sydney, I think it was about four, three or four, and um, straight out of the, uh, the North Shore of D.Y. and straight into um, a place called Bradbury, right in the thick of the Housing Commission, predominantly an Indigenous community uh, all around there. Um, yeah, it was it was very intimidating Very overwhelming yeah, It was uh, a big lesson that sort of started my life off And uh, I guess it's given me the strength to be where I am today Brothers, sisters? Yeah, i um got a brother uh, He's four years younger than me A sister that's two years younger than me Unfortunately over many years we were separated Possibly about 14 years they left uh, when my my mother left me and uh, took off with them. Yeah,
3: let's talk about that. Your mum? I left don't you. really
4: want to fucking talk about it at all. I know you don't. Yeah, no, I'm not, not not interested. Don't have anything to do with the so I don't want to. Yeah. Okay. My my father was a heavy drinker. He um he was a workaholic and I, I what I would call an alcoholic. Uh, he would drink a flag and a Penfolds Royal Reserve back in the day and. Nothing to knock off a bottle of uh, Grant Scotch and uh, whatever else was there and be out the back ripping off the fence palings with all the uncles around the area creating bonfires all fucking night and um, getting blind. Um, How <coughs> old were you at that stage? Oh, fuck, I can remember back to about six years of age, five, six years of age, and that was pretty well, pretty well the way it was. There was a lot of, um, I, t- I guess now I know, a lot of tension in the home between my parents um, back then they just yeah there was something much deeper than I ever knew that um wasn't good my father was uh very very aggressive quite violent towards my mum uh, and me back then because i was the uh the oldest and I was always sort of jumping in in front of my mum and yeah i i copped the the brunt of it so to speak i was also too being sexually abused By three perpetrators uh, One that lived at the bottom of the cul-de-sac And two that lived over the back fence And uh, that went on for probably the age of six Right through till about eight and a half And it was the, the worst The worst part of my life that I can remember growing up Um basically being forced to, to give oral sex and, and you know, masturbate and um, just sick, sick fucking shit that kids should never, ever have to go through.
3: And you knew these people?
4: I knew them. They knew me. The, my father drank with their uncle. Um, you know, I, I remember one time I, I, they used to hide up the bush And I had to go through um, a a bush, which back then was like a creek bed to go to football training because I I played rugby league and I was, um, right right up until I was an adult, I was a a really good rugby league player um, that had the opportunity to um, play in the ARL. And um, my uh, stability and mental ability didn't allow me to play that. I had the talent, but I had other things going on in my life with no support. And um, going back to that period of my life when I was a child, I would go to football training, uh, leave home and, you know, go around the back, up through a bush, and these perpetrators knew that that would be the way I would go. They knew, they, I know they knew, they were a lot older, they knew that there wasn't things good at home, and I got sick of it, and they used to threaten me and, and, and get physical with me and force me to do things um, that I Basically couldn't escape from doing It was just they were You know They were 10 years older than me Um,
3: So these kids were 18 17 Oh
4: fuck yeah Yeah absolutely Fully grown men Yep Two brothers And um, I remember coming back one day And I remember Threatening to go and To tell on them And my father was out on the veranda And he'd been drinking And he was with Their uncle And they had a sister And um, they had said that they'd bolted back and beat me to the house and said that they'd caught me and their sister, whom was, I think, probably about two years younger than me. So what was I, six, seven? So she was, you know, five, four, something like that, that we were seen in the bush um, playing doctors and nurses, basically, you know, inappropriate Mm. stuff. And it was an absolute lie. It was purely made up to make me look like a liar that was coming back. And, And they were the you know, the the Royal fucking Battalion coming in and going, oh, man, we just caught him, you know. Um, that moment is embedded in my life because I was a, a young boy in tears screaming out for help and I just remember getting the biggest fucking backhand of my life that lifted me clean off a fucking four-foot veranda flat onto um, a, uh, a driveway. And at that moment, I, I, um, I just wanted to really fucking kill people. I hated the world, I hated everybody I um, had to deal with it because there was the separation of my parents Um, My mother didn't want anything to do with me Because I reminded her too much of my father My father didn't want the responsibility at that stage of taking me on So he was very angry Um, And at that stage too I was being abused at um, a primary school That I went to by uh, two Maris brothers And um, I won't go into too much of that at the moment because that's still proceeding through court. So as you can imagine, uh, a young man basically being raped and torn from every fucking angle with, um, yeah, no support, nowhere to go. It was pretty tough.
3: I remember watching you and Russell Mansa talk and Russ has been a big supporter of you. Um, in particular around this area. And I remember you saying to him in the chat that you could see the pain in his eyes when he told you that story. And I can see the same pain in your eyes right now, man.
4: <clears throat> yeah, it's um, it, it's never easy. And I mean, look, yes, it's public knowledge that I've done interviews um, with my... My past and my present, and, and and things have been spoken about. But as I said in the beginning, um, you only, I guess, touch on things when you're being interviewed by media and stuff. Um, this is my story. This is my podcast, and um, I feel that if I'm going to do this, I need to, um, yeah, deliver it in the, in the most honest, honest way that I can. So that was um, that was the start of my my life and um yeah my rebellious my drug taking my alcoholism my crime uh it all just
3: just kicked off from there those two young men that did those horrible things did they ever face any retribution yeah.
4: and look as i said you know i was a, a young boy Trying to voice my opinion I mean I was being molested at school I made that aware and I got the cane And um, I remember getting the cane from the principal And it come off the back of me apparently saying to a girl that she was frigid <clears throat> Now I don't recall ever saying at 9-10 years of age to a girl that was supposed to be my girlfriend that she was frigid But anyway that's what was said I had spoken to this particular principal who was a Maris brother at the time. I'd also told him what was happening and I was flogged. My old man flogged me. No one gave a fuck. Nobody back then, no one wanted to know about it. And, you know, I was a troublesome child from a troublesome home. You know, who's going to believe a kid screaming out for help? It's attention, isn't it? Yeah. So. <clears throat> Yeah, it's a very tough cookie to swallow, especially in the years to come. Yeah, those two perpetrators. There was three. There was another another bloke, um, and, and I I'll fucking say his name. It was David and Peter Russell with the two blokes behind me, and Peter Mummery, and his nickname was Bum Jack Mummery, and that was for the reason that he. That's what he did. I wasn't the only person that he attacked.
3: Mm-hmm. jail now,
4: but, mate. I've got to be really honest with you and with everybody out there. In all the years of jail that I've done, I sat in every fucking yard praying that one of those dogs would walk through because I would ram a blade through their fucking throats and I'd be still sitting there today. Mm. And I've got to say, and we'll get into this a little bit later, that I'm thankful to God because I wouldn't have my four beautiful children, my beautiful wife. I wouldn't be here now having this wonderful moment to share to hopefully help others. I wouldn't have achieved some of the the great things that I have achieved. Um, I wouldn't have been able to let go of feeling a victim. Yeah. I would have still been sitting in jail doing life for, you know, pedophiles that molested me, which i got no problem, but it would have destroyed my life completely. And at the end of the day, they would have won.
3: At what point after that happened, your mum leaves, your dad is difficult, do you decide that, fuck it, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go on the street I'm just going to live on the well, street
4: Well it, it sort of didn't exactly happen like that <clears throat> So I was dumped Basically out the front of a place Where my father was living He wasn't there And I was left in the gutter To wait for him to get home Just with a bag And um, He sort of got home And was you know, He didn't know what to fucking do But he took me in. He knew that you know I was rebelling, I was trouble, and um, that my mother had left and taken my siblings, and that was the last I'd pretty much heard of them for many, 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 many years. <clears throat> he he ended up with a woman, and I won't disclose her name for respect. I'm not. I got no fucking respect for her. She's a bitch, but. Um, I just won't go into putting a name out there. She um didn't want me to live with her and her three children. My father was moving in with them, and <clears throat> so long and short of it all, I obviously ended up going with the old boy for a while. His drinking continued. <clears throat> he um his aggression continued, continued to her, continued to me. She didn't want me there. I mean, uh, my nickname was Otto. We'd sit at a fucking uh, dinner table and I'd be fed scraps and leftovers while her three kids were fed a beautiful meal with vegetables or schnitzel. And, you know, I'd I'd literally, they would call me Otto. So when the Otto bins first come out, Mm. the wheelie bins, they were called Otto bins. Well, my nickname was Otto because I just got fed the shit.
3: Second class citizen.
4: Fucking scrap. So here I am dealing with that as well. I didn't want to be there. I became extremely aggressive. I became, uh, started stealing. I, I, I you know, I, I just wanted to rebel and I did not give a fuck at all. Z- had no emotional concern for anything or anyone. Um, How old are you at this stage? So I just turned 11. <clears throat> no, oh no sorry 10 turning 11 so i remember coming home one day from school and i hadn't done all the chores in the house that i was allocated and i was being abused by this woman and i told her to get fucked and i said listen slut fuck off i've had enough so anyways the old boys come home and she's basically told him i quarter her a slut and that was it mate he just fucking unleashed um I went to school the next day, black and blue, and they just went, mate, that's it, you, we're putting you into uh, family and community services, which was facts back then. That involved a lot because all of a sudden, you know, I was a kid struggling at school, but then I was a kid that had nothing, was taken out of school and expected to go to school, but living with a foreign family, and like a um, temporary accommodation, I was in written out of refuges, foster homes. And that went on for just over a year. And I was just like, fuck this. I left school at 13.
3: 13, is that? Year 7. Year 7. I never,
4: I never went past year 7, yeah,
3: unfortunately. Everybody that I speak to about this podcast says the same thing. You're, and, and even when we talk sometimes, I might send you a text that's misspelled. and if you're, you're actually really particular about spelling, education, and actually you 're an intelligent man, but you left school at the age of thirteen
4: yeah, I did um, Where'd you learn I, that the streets i you know I often look back and I think to myself i 'm grateful i'm I am grateful i don 't have a trade i don 't have any um, uh, qualifications as such that you know gives me the right to go and work at a high rate uh, a good earning capacity um for for providing for my family i i don 't have any of that i, I mean i 've got work workplace skills i 've got talent that i 've achieved um at forty four it 's taken me a long fucking time nice. um my career as a criminal didn 't end um till about oh ten ten years ago so um and you know the, i'm i 'm thankful for that but no i didn't i just didn 't have any i didn 't have Everything that I needed that most people would need to succeed in life.
3: So you're schooled literally on the streets. Hundred
4: percent. Hundred percent. I um I started hanging around with some people that are probably gonna listen to this podcast and you guys know who you are. I'm not gonna name anyone once again. But um we we become a family. <clears throat> we we were fucking good at what we did. Everything we did was wrong. Um, <laughs> we could drink piss better than anybody else, snort better lines of speed and fucking, you know, like... And you're
3: 13, 14 oh, at Oh, mate, stage.
4: I was tripping and fucking eating balls of
3: hash. I was... I was...
4: I got a needle stuck in my arm when I was 14, you know what I mean? Like, I was hanging out with heroin addicts and, and, and people on speed back There wasn't ice, it just didn't exist, but heroin mm. was a big thing and, you know, rowies and, and seros and all these sort of things, so all the people i hanging around were, you know, the older crims were sort of using the gear and the younger ones were popping pills to get off their head and I I, I allowed twice to, to be injected and it just was something that scared the fuck out of me. Um, I remember being in a stolen car and a bloke who was a grown man <coughs> were out, we'd made a fair bit of money and, um, you know, I was sort of learning the ropes and he was a big earner and, but he was a heroin addict And I remember we went up to the cross to get a shot And um, I was going to have a bag of coke And snort it And um, he was going to have his shot of gear Anyway, he said, oh, don't worry about it He goes, I'll just get coke So here he is, he's bought these, what they had was balloons back then And um, he's sitting in um, one of the back lanes near, near the cross And we're in a little Ford Escort uh, I was a fucking <laughs> cool little
3: escort, little fire speed to it So this escort you're sitting in isn't yours?
4: Oh, fuck no. No, no, never. We, no, we didn't, we didn't own You didn't cars. drive your own no. car? No, <clears throat> never. And um, so anyway, we're sitting there and he's, he's mixed up in his spoon what he thought was coke. So he put a lot more into the spoon than he would have if it was heroin. And I'll never forget him having a shot. And I looked at him and I just watched his eyes roll back and him go blue and I had to lift this 110-kilo fucking bloke out of the car, into the car and get him to St Vincent's Hospital. Uh, He lived. I, to this day, don't know how I did it at that age, but that was my welcoming to the real world of drugs, living on the streets and death.
0: If you'd like to talk to someone about abuse that's taken place in your life, no matter how long ago it happened, your GP is always a good place to start. If that's not going to work for you, you can contact one respect on one 737 732 or via their website one respectorgau or you can call Lifeline's 24-hour phone counselling service on 13 11 14.
3: Let's just paint a picture there. You're a 15 year old, 14 at that. 14 year old doing coke. Yes. In the cross. Yes. Driving a stolen car. Yep. Watching someone OD and then taking him to hospital in a stolen car. Yep.
4: And dropping him out the front door and taking off. That's how
3: it was. That's what. It's just what it was. It's 14.
4: Well, my choices were either get out of the car and run, and you know my prints and everything would have been all over, and there's a dead body. Um, or I tried to get him to safety and, and I, mate, the guy was blue, blue and it was just by sheer luck we weren't too far from the hospital and, um, yeah, well, I know that he lived through that. He's no longer alive today, but I know at that stage he, um, he did live. So, yeah, it was very interesting.
3: Without naming names, the crew used to hang out with, Mm. uh, as a sort of 14, 15 year old. Um. Where are they now? what are they doing?
4: Yeah, look, there's a lot of good things. I mean I won't lie. there's a lot that are dead um, died from suicide, high speed chases, a lot of drug overdose, a lot of heroin overdoses. Um, it just seemed to be the way that everybody was heading back then. you know if you're if you're on the streets or you're making money or you, you were in crime it was it was the gear um, i I seen so much I that I, I sort of thank God that I had to experience that. At such a young age because there was so many times there where a fit was ready, you know, Like Because you just sit down there, and the older crew would be like, Can't have a shot, you know, have a little shot. It's only ten lines or five lines. You know, you you you'll be right. <coughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I just couldn't get the gist of why the fuck you'd want to get stoned, sit there fucking half asleep, and then throw your guts up everywhere. And I used to watch these fucking people and I'd be sitting there all fucking day or, or you know, all morning with them and they'd be like, Yeah yeah, no, we're gonna go get an earn, we're gonna go fucking get money. I'd be like, wake up, cunt. And I just couldn't work out. So I started to question what the fuck was I doing hanging around with some of these people. Yeah. And that was one thing that actually started to deter me. But then at that age, I, I, I was trying to to live, mm. you know. So we had a really cool core crew of us, um, there was a couple of couple of girls that were really staunch and hardcore, uh, and, and a good crew of blokes. Which you know, we all end up becoming what they were called as searchers, and we made some big, big fucking money at that age. I'm, searchers, what does yeah, that mean? Yeah, mate. We were, Oh, for example, well, we we were the original crews that were running around, you know, like pulling up out the front of banks and running and jumping over the counters and cleaning out the drawers without weapons. You know, there was a crew of Banky boys and that's what we did. You know, we were ram-raiding duty-free stores in the middle of Sydney City.
2: Sydney's designer thieves have struck again. At around 2.30 this morning, robbers used a gold Honda Civic sedan to smash through the doors of a Gucci store on Castle Ray Street. Once
4: inside, three offenders gained access to a number of designer clothing and handbags and left the uh, stolen motor vehicle there and made their escape using
1: another motor vehicle.
4: Doing bank snatches We were You know I don't know if you remember But there used to be cat bags You know We'd sit off night safes And know You know Businesses And back then Everyone paid cash Mm. You know So you knew on a Thursday It was It was fucking payday And you're going to clean up Because It wouldn't matter You could go sit at a bank Or you could follow Someone from an industrial area And you'd know Who'd have the, the, the The briefcase With the cash in it And they're paying staff You know Like fucking Thousands and thousands of dollars they're all working. The fact was back then it was just a, an envelope, brown paper bag, and fucking that was your slip. And there's your five, six hundred bucks, whatever it is. So multiply that plus all the bill money and everything else. If you got that fucking cash bag or that cap bag, you were sweet. Mm. And that that's what happened, <clears throat> you know. So and and I speak of this because purely in fact that um, I was charged for quite a number of them over the years. So. For anybody out there that's worried, I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about anybody else. Here. <laughs> um, and at the end of the day, that was that was they were big earns, and that's how that's how it started. What um, sort
3: of big earns? What are we talking about there,
4: mate? We would talk anywhere between fucking five and, and eighty grand, depending on what day and what we hear. And you're a fifteen year old. Oh yeah. It? And we divvy it up just between our crew, and like we we literally would have taxi drivers on the tab that mm. would sit in certain places and. One of us would go, and the other one would say one would snatch, and the other one. And I'm not talking about handbags, like ladies, and I'm talking fucking serious shit. Yeah. You know, one had one had chase, one had hit, snatch, and the other one would be following. One with the cat bags off, he's already gone. He's either up in the hottie or he's in the fucking taxi. And here comes me, the big fucking gun, charging through from behind, just taking people out. And anybody that came near me, mate, that had the fucking bag, I had to use my size. I wasn't the quickest, but Fuck me, dead. You weren't going to get near me, buddy. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, look, I'm not glorifying it either. So, please, for anybody out there, I'm, I'm just making light of it. It, it yeah. really is. It's, um, you know, it's something that I look back on now, and it needs to be put into context. And we're here to tell a story. So,
3: Killick said the same. He said this is not about glorifying no, the shit you and,
4: and if you're going to listen to this podcast and you want to hear this story, there is something the through this story at the end of it that I hope blows your minds to pieces. Of story of redemption because I want to give everybody the, the cold hard facts of what a fucking violent little prick I was, to mm. <laughs> later becoming um, a very violent gang member and um, you know, quite a strong powerful person within circles of Australia.
3: You can't know the end until you know the beginning, which is what we're doing I, right I now. I agree.
4: This is my story, I own it and I'm very proud of where I am today because of it. So.
3: What, what does living on the street mean, Brad?
4: I had nowhere to stay. I'd break into halls. I lied to a lot of people, see, because there were still people that I was knocking around with. There were streety style of kids, but always had somewhere to go home to, like mm. a, a nan or an auntie or a cousin or a mate's mum. I had no one. I had nothing. Um, I had a football oval that I slept in for six months in a sleeping bag. Sorry, a cricket oval. And this particular cricket oval um, was quite had a big bush on the back of it and it was quite, quite black at night. And I knew that if I slept in the middle of the cricket pitch in a sleeping bag, there was very little chance anyone was going to walk through the middle of that oval in the pitch black and try and attack me. And, and this particular place, I'd go and play football at still. So I was still trying to maintain some sort of normality um, by turning up to football, you know, going to training. I'd go to training and Fuck, ah, rattles me even saying it. But I'd go to training and put on in front of all these parents and these kids that nothing was wrong and nobody knew what I was doing because I could play football and I was praying that it was my out, you know. Mm. And then everyone would go and I'd pretend to hide and then I'd come back and go and sit in the change room, break into the change room and sleep in the change room or, or the public toilets there because I had a padlock and, I, and I'd try and alter that or I'd go to the community hall and in the community hall up on the top of the walls had these the old burners sort of um, heaters and you used to be able to pull the long cords and <clears throat> they had this blue phone back there in the day and in the blue phone was coins and you used to be able to grab underneath the blue phones and put pressure on it and rip it. If you didn't have a screwdriver or something, you'd pop it open and there was a cash box in there and nine times out of ten, you'd get ten bucks out of it or five bucks out of it, which was like fucking beautiful. I've got a feed. And this, you got to remember, this is, this is all before I started making, you know, big money, big earning. Yep. Campbelltown police hated me Um, They knew me I must say One of the boys that I played football with His old boy was the sergeant down there And he was very fair to me He knew who my dad was He knew that I had problems at home Mm -hmm. Um, And he never tried to Fuck me over The detectives of Campbelltown hated me Fucking mate I I got flogged so many times It was just ridiculous what they got away with I remember getting caught in a stolen car one night in the same car park I played football in and trained in. I, I left football training, and I went and I, I went to a mate's house, had a shower, and I pretended that I was going to go on my merry way. And I went and stole a car. It was a Ford XD, and you used to be able to just pop into them because I had these long door locks that would pop up with a knob on it. Yep. And you could put the scissors in or a flathead screwdriver and just give it a little nudge, and you just wait for it and grab the door handle. It she pop up. Grab the nail file and just fucking, because they had like a paddle pop stick sort of ignition, like the old Kingswoods note with the lips, but except there was no lip. So you just give it a little jiggle, next minute, you got the reds, you're off. So I'm thinking, sweet, I've got somewhere to sleep tonight. It didn't last long, but because the car got reported, the coppers were looking for it, and I got the fuck kicked out of me and dragged out of a, a car, freezing me nuts off, and um, taken down to the cells at Campbelltown, where that particular sergeant, started to really sort of take a bit of an interest in why I kept turning up. And um you know, he he couldn't do much. There's look, let's be honest, there's nothing he can do. No. You know what I mean? All he can do is try and suggest the 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 other channels out there, you know, through family community services or from there it um it all just went from 0 to 100 real quick. I um started getting extremely Violent. I was angry. I was drinking a lot, taking a lot of speed, and I was making a lot of money. Um, you know, so you know, here we are. We're buying designer clothes, designer shoes, and this is before all these young eshay blokes. <laughs> Fuck! I can remember wearing the first pair of Nike One Eighties and Hirachis, You know, no one even <laughs> knew what fucking Nikes were. We had Air Structures, Nike Air Maxes, whatever.
3: You were but living it up. We
4: had them. We kicked it off. You yep. know what I mean? That was how we walked around. You know, It'd be covered in Country Road or Lacoste or Sergio Tacchini. Whatever it took for no one to realize that I was a homeless kid, you know what I mean? And, and even now, my haircut every two weeks is just habitual. I just do it. yep, and it's the same fucking haircut I've had since <laughs> I was that young. It, it's, it's just what it is. It became a way of life. And um, for me, I you know I got jumped quite a few times because you know a lot of times there was one out. Um, Fucking John Hoppawati, you're a cocksucker. He robbed me for my shoes. Hoppawati? A, oh, fuck him. Robbed me for a pair of shoes on the train because I was sitting there by myself between Campbelltown and Minnow Station when I was a kid and him and his homeboys. Weak as piss. And, um, yeah. So He wasn't
3: in your crew. He was fuck just,
4: no. no. He was just one of, the, one of the, the Claymore boys and they were going around rolling people for their shoes. Like, I was a kid that was making urns. You know what I mean? Always looked a million dollars but wasn't worth shit. Had no backup, no support. So anyway, moving right along from that, I'm not going to give him any more credit, but at the end of the day, it was what it was, you know, so I got sick of that and um, I started to, you know, arm myself, I started to turn a point where I became that person. Arm yourself with what? Oh, I had knives, I was looking for guns, I was, you know, I'd carry around a glass Coke bottle, the old 500ml glass Coke bottle and... First thing i you know, hit smashing on the ground or slashing across the throat or the face. Like, that was the
3: first time you went to detention, too, right?
4: Ah, uh, one of yeah, one of. Tell so, us that story. Well, I was in the city, and um, I basically robbed three people and took them to a um, uh, ATM machine at Darling Harbour when Darling Harbour was all new and fresh and cool to be hanging out at. Held them hostage while I made each one of them. Take out the money And One One didn't sort of Want to take it out So then I become Quite violent um, And yeah <laughs> The rest is
3: history there And You got caught I got caught
4: <laughs> So I got caught So I've done the bolt And all of a sudden <clears throat> One got away The one that it, um, I went to stab And um He got up to Near the old entertainment centre in Sydney, the Chinatown, there used to be a police, big police station there. And um, it's not far from Darling Harbour. Mm. And all of a sudden they had coppers and dog squads and it, it was full on. Anyway, I was 14, turning 15, bang, pinched, and straight into Minda. It was a Friday night and I was straight into Patterson House because I was charged um, to ban money for menace, assault and robbery, um, and a few other backup charges, but it was enough to, to make me a violent offender. So back in Patterson House back then was some heavy, heavy young offenders that were on the verge of going to jail or, you know, um, had just been convicted. Like, um, a particular Asian gangster who I became very good friends with, um, who's no longer here, was shot. Um, you know, he was in there for a murder and apparently... These witnesses end up going missing as well. and So they weren't, they weren't, they weren't mugs, you know what I mean? These, these were powerful young people that had a lot of pull on the street. And I was like fucking a nobody. And I'd just come in and I'm like, my ass is clenching. I remember having a pair of Nike Jordans on. And they were white and red. They were, they were red inside the tongue. And they were white with a red sort of fucking thing around the laces. And, they the, you know, the ankle ones. Mm. So I thought I was cool. It was Saturday morning. I woke up. By the time I'd finally got in there, it was very early in the morning and they um, opened the door for breaking and never forget it. Groover's in the heart. You know that song? <laughs> yeah, Delight. Delight, right? So everybody's watching Rage. In those, in those sort of boys' homes and, and back then, everybody came out and sat in an area and everybody watched Channel 2. And it always had all the cool songs in it. The first fucking song I heard was Groovy's in the heart. I'm just sitting back going, what the fuck? Like, I just... I had no idea. I, you know, I, I'd only just started to understand the streets. You no, know, I had no idea now how serious shit was going to get. And uh, Did
3: you think you were hard back then?
4: I didn't think I was hard. I just thought I could hold myself, and I thought that I was... You know, I was, I was solid in what I did. I... I you know, like I said, I, I got jumped, I'd fucking cop my floggings, you know, I'd been stabbed, I'd been fucking robbed, I'd been... You know, I'd cop what most street kids cop mm. before they start to, you know, start to have enough and say fuck you and and, and retaliate, and that's just what you've got to do.
3: How long was that first stint in detention?
4: So I did nine months for that. And <laughs> The boys in there, they, they were pretty good to me. And, um, you know, I got to know a lot of them, and, and to this day... There's a couple of them that are still alive, and the other most of them are all dead. Yeah, it, it sort of set set the bar for what the future was going to hold. That's for sure. I um I ended up getting out, and I had nowhere to go, you know. So straight back to what I knew, mm. and um, bang, it was on again.
3: Fifteen, sixteen, yeah, stealing cars.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is where you know jumping bank counters started to become more prominent. Ram raiding, you know, some really good. Good fucking high and crime shit, you know. Like, it was big. You know, we were like a a mafia on the street, if you will. Like, a, we're our own world. Yeah. And funny enough, we didn't give a fuck. And and you know, people say, "Oh, didn't you? You know, didn't you worry when you're stuck and locked up?" And I thought, you know what? I actually didn't mind getting locked up as as a young bloke because what happened was you got to catch up with all your mates in there, or the boys that you would normally hang out with. Mm. And it was like, it was no big thing, you know. You, you were cool. You were just catching up with the lads and you know, making plans on what we're going to do and we're going to get out.
3: So it actually help the criminal...
4: Oh, mate, there was no rehabilitation. No. No rehabilitation. No, none whatsoever. And I, I, to be honest with you, don't know anybody from the era that I went in that's not dead, um, done a lot of jail i um, gone through heavy addictions and, like, it was pretty full on.
3: There's got to be some sort of rush that happens when you jump at a bank counter or oh, stealing rush a is car. The
4: unbelievable. You know, I mean, the, I enjoyed driving. I wasn't the best um, thief. I mean, we, I'll say we, we drove one night down to, uh, from Sydney, and I, I won't disclose the actual place, but it was many, many hours down south. Of Sydney, and it was a particular place that had very high end clothing and um, you know that that was what we did we'd just go clean these places out and we did that, and we went down with a couple of stolen cars and anyway, we got up to about halfway coming back in this little country town and um, all of a sudden one of us got chased in one of the hotties, so we had to abort anyway, we all end up. Basically, splitting, and we all ended up having to get out of those cars. So, we ended up trying to get a couple of other cars, and we got them, we got back to Sydney. Funny, funny story is, and I say funny because it was funny back then, one mm. of the cars that we took was a screw from Goulburn. <laughs> now, we didn't know it at the time, <laughs> but it turns out he was the owner of one of the vehicles that we ended up taking to get back home. So, I'm sure that came back to us tenfold over the years. He would never have known, but that was yeah, when we got arrested, we were told. So, they've impounded these two vehicles in this, in this police holding yard. And this particular police holding yard it was just like a six, seven foot cyclone barbed wire fucking fence. You know, like back in the old days, the, it was a fence with barbed wire, a yep. few spotlights, because that's just what they did. They had you, you know, you smashed cars, stolen cars just in this compound area back of the old country cop shop. We went, fuck this, we're going down to get everything that we took. Because we knew within 24 hours it was still going to be there. There's no way they could have, it just wouldn't have happened that way. So we ended up getting a 928S, S2, <laughs> a Porsche. And um, I don't know many of you that know about it, but they, they don't go over a certain speed unless they sink and become like aerodynamic So we went from coming from up near Bankstown and up that way in the city, we ended up coming down south again, hours and hours and hours and hours. And um, this particular driver was a very good driver, older guy, but he was a heroin addict. So it was kind of sketchy because he he was stoned but functional, but on the other hand, could drive, but if he went on the nod, you're Mm. fucked.
3: Well, I'm driving sitting, a really and, high-powered oh, car. Yeah, and
4: I'm in the back, so I'm only a young bloke, you know. And I'm probably oh the youngest out of us. There's like a wing that comes out, and the moment it happens, the front end sinks, and it goes from like 130 to fucking 240 like that, and that's the speed we sat on all the way fucking down, got all this shit, and got it all the way back, and um,
3: <laughs> and just still here, and
4: we still here. But that that was that was a pretty. Pretty full on sort of situation and um, we got pinched for that one, so that's alright. Yeah,
3: you're right. What do you reckon your motivation was to do bad things?
4: I don't think it was motivation, I just think I became numb. Numb to emotion, numb to feeling, numb to love, numb to being loved. I just I just I was just had been torn from one part of my body to the other, you know, like I had nothing to give. And I, I basically just adapted that everybody was out to hurt me my, my whole attitude was this No one ever again would fucking hurt me The way that I had been hurt growing up I just, that was, I swore to myself I don't care how many people jump me I don't care whether I get shot, stabbed I will fucking come back And I will finish the job if you don't I hate to say it, but to this day That's just how my mind is I will never, ever, ever. Look, I try not to make enemies. I don't want enemies. I live my life quite humbly these days, and I'm a threat to no one. Mm. No, I'm really not. And um, I've always said that if anybody felt the need to take me out, just do it. Like, just get a bullet and take me out. Because if I live, I I I don't know what I'll do. All I
3: do, Mm. there's that don't give a fuck attitude, which is obviously where you were when you when you're at this age. Where? Well, no
4: one gave a fuck about me, you know? Like, I, I, what do you do? You're telling people that you'd been raped and molested and, and, and like, you're telling people that are supposed to care about you, people that, you know, you, you trust. you going to school and getting touched by, you know, Morris Brothers. Like, fuck, are you kidding me? Who do you turn to? Mm. No one cares. So, uh, as a young person, my whole persona become just black. Everything was just, I'm going to fucking rip your head off. I'm going to take what I want and ain't nobody... Going to hurt me. I, I started moving up the, the, the ranks in, in the crime sort of scene, and um, you know, I was making a bit of a name for myself as that young bloke that <coughs> could make money. Yep. Um, I wasn't a junkie, like, I wasn't an addict. I definitely drank and definitely played up and took drugs, but I wasn't using like most at that stage that we were hanging around with. And a particular bike club had me hanging around at that stage at 17, 16, just at 17. And they wanted me to nom up. <coughs> anyway, I refused to nom up. They used to go to these nightclubs um, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday and back at the clubhouse. And I was getting in because I was a bigger fella and I, you know, I I, I was all right, I, I could get into these nightclubs. You know? yeah. No one was saying, I oh, you got any idea. And yeah, you know, yeah. I held myself quite well. And... Uh, <laughs> Guaranteed wouldn't matter who. And I had one buddy, who I grew up with, and you know who you are if you hear this, uh, fatty. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and mate, we would go back to back week in and week out. They'd send their noms in because I, you know, I, I couldn't be contained. They wanted, you know, I got on well with them, and I, there was this and, this and that that was happening. Yeah. Um. Like I said, I was making money. I was doing what I was doing, but. I wasn't going to be told what to do by anybody, yeah. you know, and I knew the moment that I said yes, and they said, yeah, here's a bike, you know, 17, fuck yeah, I'm a nom for this club, blah, 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 fuck that. I didn't want a bar of it. Yeah. So then every time I went into local, like, clubs and pubs, mate, I was just punching on. And that's all I fucking did was just, I you know, mean, back of my head, as you could probably see, there's more scars across it than ever, and it's all glasses and bottles and and that's what it's from. It's just, <laughs> it's war scars. And, you know, it, it's just what had to happen. I mean, back in the day, you used to come out in the main street, and the coppers got to the point where they wouldn't come in because it becomes so violent. One fifteen this morning, and there's chaos in the cross. Police arrest two men after a brawl. One claims he wasn't involved. And there wasn't like there was today, like squads, you know, like there, there was riot squad, but. They weren't on hand the way – it was your local patrol coppers, you know? Yeah. And they'd probably have three or four patrols around on a Thursday Friday night because I know there'd be a piss-up in the clubs. There'd be fights on the street. But me and Fatty'd come out back-to-back back, and, mate, fuck, we'd destroy from one end of the street to the other. Not like everyone that came at us. They used to be able to get these tin green bins out of the fucking thing. They are in a steel thing. And they weren't chained in. So, you know, you <laughs> run it for the next minute, fucking whack. Grab another bloke through a fucking shop front window, bang. Like it was movie sort of shit back then. And the coppers would literally wait until it was over, wait for us to walk to the street and right, i jump in the back of the bull wagon, And we'd know, but what, what are you going to do? Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? They knew who we were by this stage. They knew who I was. They knew exactly my attitude. I didn't give a fuck. I, I didn't care, I never fucking once made a statement I refused everything, you know what I mean And I was becoming a real pest, a habitual offender I um started selling a lot of heroin <clears throat> back then um, And I started basically making a lot of money I, I sort of had this thing that, well, if everyone's going to take it I'm going to make money I had nothing, I had a brain And I used it for the wrong reasons back then it become an epidemic And it was, it was bad and, and I I don't think it's funny at all When I look back now Of You know, and, uh, how that heroin um, How it would have affected people I mean, look, I get it If it wasn't going to be me back then The street kid that was trying to live and make money And that was what I knew how It was going to be somebody else Yeah So, um, I, I'm not here to apologise Or make, you know, any amends for that It was what it was The coppers... Pulled me and Fatty up one day, and um, <clears throat> they had us basically. Someone had given us up, and we used to do this run, and we we're being watched. But we were smart enough to not physically get caught doing this run. But then they blocked off this whole fucking area, and as we turned into this one-way street, these fucking cocksuckers had set us up. And um, boom, we're out of the car, and you know, I got a mouthful of fucking balloons, and I'm like. Look and they're looking there, looking there, opening your mouth and I'm like, fuck off, you know, like next thing I'm down to my tongue. First chance I had, I seen a drain, I've got them, bang, they're gone. Well, that was all good and well and they've got me old mate in the paddy, paddy wagon and I said, he's got nothing to do with it, you know, and he's going, I don't know nothing about what he's doing, you know, what he's doing. And he had nothing, he, you know, so off he went. <clears throat> no wanted of me. And I was just like, fuck, here we go. So they were adamant that they had me. One of them standing there, and he looks down, and could see this color at the in the drain, the bottom of the drain. Guess what's this? So what do you mean? What's this? Calls the sergeant over. Sergeant, look, look down there. We need to lift that drain up. Sure as hell, they got the caps or the balloons, is what they were. So bang. As far as they were concerned, I was pinched. There was no serious circumstantial. It wasn't. I did wasn't physically caught with anything. No one's seen anything. Yeah. It was just they were there. They believed that I was fucking wheeling and dealing, so I was under arrest. So off we go. I get bail on it, so I was like, "Fuck yeah, this is good." I wasn't going back to court, so I started, um, you know, failing to appear. And in this time, oh, mind you, I'd been, I'd already done another, basically two years prior to this, in and out. So you know, in that period, I'd been to Mount Penang, Carryong, I'd been to all, all the boys' home. Yasma, Yasma was like my second home. These are all detentions, though. <laughs> yeah, 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 They're yeah. yeah. And, and I'm like, look, I, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and go through all no, of them no, for everyone. Not. I, I know everyone knows where I was, you know. Mm. So I went through that whole process, you know, the court system, the Bajura court, the Minder court, Barbara, fucking Mr. Blackmore. Mate, I just got fucking ping-ponged. Then I was on the run. So it had turned 18 and um, I was wanted. For failing to appear? Oh, yeah, and the numerous other things, heroin, supply and <laughs> possession yep. and all this sort of shit. Then I happened to be sitting in Western Suburbs Leagues Club and I was playing the pokies I'm just on a random day. And this off duty copper comes in, he sits next to me and he looks at me, looks at him, and I thought, fuck. So what are you looking at? He goes, you fucking scumbag, piece of shit. And I went, what well, can't? Picked up a stool and just batted him. Like, I mean, that was not good. Um, and I fucked right up. So what went from just a first instant warrant For possession and supply Was now Assault police Grievous bodily harm With a fucking deadly weapon Like it was I was fucked mm. So I ran From that fucking Lee's club About 12 k's, And I, I I got away So then I'm on the run Fully on the run Anyway I'm ducking and weaving I'm still making money and I'm you know, still going to do what i got to do I'll never forget. I'm walking down this particular road, and I'm looking at this particular place that had, um, let's just say, a massive because laptop computers, the Toshiba's and you know, IBM's and all the cool laptops were coming out, and there was big money getting fetched for them, and the old video cameras. So I was casing this joint. It was the middle of the day, but I was just cruising. You know, like I know what I was doing. No one else knew what I was doing. I walk and I'm walking. I'm walking. I'm walking. Next minute, I turn around. And here they were, fucking boom, boom. Mate, I had more coppers come out, jump all over, my detectives fucking flogged. F- just beat the shit out of me. And um, yeah, that was where it all sort of turned and off the long bay I went.
0: Thank you so much to Brent and to Podshape for allowing us to share this episode of The Clink. The podcast is available everywhere. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800RESPECT.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 YARN on 13 92 76 or 13YARN.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.